Well, Pastor uh, David has asked me to uh, continue with our studies, our look at uh, First Peter, and we'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 12 to 22. I just want to note before we uh, read the Scripture that actually Peter is repeating a number of things that he said in chapter 2 and, and will continue to say, and how we are to respond as suffering for Christ throughout our lives. And it's not that he hasn't got other things to say, but he really wants us to get the point. The Christian church, a young church in Peter's day, was suffering persecution from Rome, from some of the Jewish leaders, and it was a really difficult time. And so he emphasizes the points that he wants to make in the Scriptures. So let's just read. We'll have it on the screen for you. First Peter 3, verses 12 to 22. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So do not worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. And so he went and preached to spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat, the ark. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not from removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clear conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. Amen. Well, one of the things it seems is that uh, many, if not most human beings, are seeking uh, is to live a good life. Now, everyone's definition of a good life may vary depending on what you consider good. Uh, but in Western societies, I think typically that means having a happy home life, uh, a good job, a satisfactory income, uh, having good health, good friends, good relationships with people around us, and basically living a stress-free life as much as it's possible. Well, interestingly, and I think it was this summer, there was a beer commercial on TV that expressed this picture by a group of friends imbibing in the sunset at a fishing lodge, sitting back, relaxing. And the commercial says, it doesn't get any better than this. 
Well, commercials have a habit of painting a rosy picture of life if you buy their product. And, uh, you know, uh, however, everything that's advertised will not necessarily bring you a better life, and it may even get you into more debt. But it's not the better way of life that is suggested in our scripture this morning. Uh, contrary to society's idea of a better life, a good day in the Bible, in the book of Acts, for example, shows Paul and Silas in a Greek prison. They were stripped. They were beaten with rods. Their feet were clamped to stocks, Acts chapter 16. You'd see the story there. there. And they were praying and singing psalms at midnight. And that's when God broke in. He sent a great earthquake. It blew the prison doors right off their hinges, and the chains of every prisoner just fell off. You won't see a commercial like that, you know. I mean, that's a good day in what the, the Lord is doing. And the theme of these verses from uh, Paul's first letter this morning is that we are blessed if we suffer for doing good in the sight of the Lord. And uh, verse, again, verse 13 to 14, Peter says, Who would want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. You know, and in these verses, Peter has now moved to the issue that is central to the rest of his letter, the issue of Christian suffering may not be a, a theme we always like to hear about, but it's here in, in the Scriptures. And it's showing us that in the mix of life, uh, God's ways, although they might be often counterculture, especially in our day, it's a better way to live life and experience life, even if we have times of suffering. For only God's ways will lead us to salvation and ultimately the paradise that has been lost from the Garden of Eden. And we need to remember that Peter is talking about suffering because we are living in obedience to Christ. Not because we do dumb things and we bring suffering upon ourselves and upset people. Uh, he reiterates this in chapter 4, uh, verse 15, 16. He says there, if you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. Don't be nosy parkers. But it's no shame to suffer for being a Christian. So if it's something that we have said or done that upsets other people, hey, that's on us. But the concern of Scripture here is how to respond when we suffer specifically for the cause of Christ. Now, in saying in verse, back in verse 13, who will harm us if we're eager to do good, Peter's not encouraging Christians to assume that our chances are better than average for avoiding suffering throughout life. In the context of his whole letter, and not just pulling a verse or two out of context, he is assuring us that under God's care, under God's blessing, when we are abused, for simply refusing to participate in the ungodly practices of our society, we are actually blessed by him. No evil can come upon us such that it will so destroy us that it will take away God's care, God's presence, God's love from us. 
And Peter actually is expressing uh, what other scriptures have said. We'll put these up for you. The Apostle Paul, Romans 8.31, says the same thing. If God is for us, hey, who can be against us? And going back to the Old Testament, Psalm 56, verse 4, the psalmist says, I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? And even the words of Jesus himself in John 16, 33, in the world you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So Peter is writing to encourage those who feel the mounting pressure from their society to compromise their faith and their values. And therefore, as Christians, we should not think it strange, as he says in chapter 4, that we are called to endure persecution for the sake of Christ. And one commentator points out that suffering is not the opposite of blessing. You might remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5:11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And that word of Jesus is not just a promise. It really is a blessing. Now, blessings from God, of course, can include many of the joys and even some of the riches of, of life. But for Peter, and in this scripture, he is speaking of the privilege of living rightly before our Lord and Savior. And suffering for that is nothing than a blessing from God himself. It's evidence even of one's salvation and that we're on the right track and living the life God is calling us to. Uh, for example, the Apostle Paul knew the blessing of uh, Christ's grace even in the midst of suffering. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Paul says, "'That is why I take pleasure in my weaknesses, "'in the insults, hardships, persecutions, "'and troubles that I suffer for Christ. "'For when I am weak, then I am strong.'" Now, again, that's counterculture, especially in our day and age. And I was thinking about this, and I wonder, what do you do in a situation uh, like the one that was shared with us near the end of our annual general meeting earlier this year? Uh, if you were here, you might remember a mum told us of a video that her son was exposed to in the school he was attending that ridiculed and put down Christians for not embracing the LGBTQ and transgender lifestyle, in effect creating hatred towards Christians. You know, and it can be very difficult to hold strongly to biblical teachings when that kind of persecution comes, and particularly if it comes through your children, because children don't fully understand the Word of God themselves. You know, their minds are trying to deal with this kind of a situation. And what's a parent to do? Do you simply grin and bear it? No. You know, although we may not be able to see the blessing immediately as we go through a time of persecution, but certainly prayer would be probably our first and one of our strongest allies. You know, and parents, you know, in that kind of situation need as much comfort as their children. And perhaps what they can do, uh, or if you're a parent, you know, share with other Christian parents the concern 
seek their prayers, seek their advice. And if it's a school situation, maybe the school has a couple of Christian teachers, you know, and you could go and sit down and share your concerns with them. And uh, maybe other options are, are available, you know, and through prayer, we need to think of those. And whatever decision you, you make, if there are children involved, you need to speak to them and try to explain depending on their age. Because again, they don't understand the Word of God always the way adults do. You know, but seek to reassure them, you know, affirm that God still loves them and their family and that He is with them. And He's with us when you and I go, different types of persecutions go through that. Now, Peter's vision for how Christians is to, are to relate to even a hostile social situation, as one commentator has put it, is thought-provoking. It's thought-provoking because Peter does not counsel either the withdrawal from society for safety's sake, nor a hostile counterattack, you know, on the society, on the individuals who disagree with us. Rather, as one commentator has said, faith does not close the doors to a relationship with other people out of fear or out of hate. It turns rather in openness to others just as it turns to God. Now, if we're going to get into a conversation with people who are calling us to get involved in something uh, that is contrary to God's ways, I think Peter has a warning for us here, because easily such conversations can deteriorate into arguments and just further the, the uh, issue and the hatred that could arise from that. Again, verses 16 and 17, Peter says, do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. And you see, rather than being intimidated by whatever opposition others may lay upon us, what we may encounter in our society, Peter wants us to respond in a positive and effective manner that reflects the gospel that we believe in. Instead of allowing fear and intimidation to drive us into using the same tactics that are used against us. We are called to respond in a way uh, that is humble, respectful, characteristic of believing Christians. And for ultimately, that will defeat, you know, malicious talk of those who denigrate our faith and our belief in Christ. So in verse 17, Peter says, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing wrong. And even though the immediate outcome uh, may be suffering for us. You know, God is still in control. And we need to get that into our hearts, into our minds. You know, uh, it, it can be hard, but God is still there. Even though the immediate outcome may be suffering, but in the long run, you know, God will ultimately take care of things. But you know, sometimes even a Christ-like response does not change the manner or the attitude of those responding to us, at least not in the short run. And people sometimes continue to get upset, get angry. 
And I think you reach a point where, in effect, you have to agree to disagree. Uh, and remember, when Jesus sent out his uh, disciples to share the gospel, uh, he knew they were going to meet uh, some opposition. And look what he said to them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. He said, if any household or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message, shake its dust from your feet as you leave. In other words, don't get involved in some argument with them. Don't get annoyed with them. Just simply leave. And as if he didn't get it first, a few verses later, look what he says to his disciples. When you are persecuted in one town, flee to the next. Okay, it's time to move on. And, you know, sometimes we have to do that and just walk away. And Peter reminds us in verse 18 that Christ suffered for our sins once for all time, he says. He says he never sinned but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. And what he is doing in that verse is reminding us of the grounds for our willingness to suffer unjustly at times for our obedience to Christ. Christ died for our sins once and for all. His saving victory comes from the fact that you know, his sacrifice was perfect. It was final. There's no need for it to be repeated or offered again as in the Old Testament sacrifices. Christ has died to pay for every sin, every shortcoming in our life. He died for human sin fully and finally. It's been accomplished. And we can be absolutely sure, even in times of persecution, that as we commit our lives to him, he will be with us. His sacrifice forgives our shortcomings, our sins. And in that, even through suffering, we have a better way of living. Now, Peter's next verses, 19 to 21, uh, actually, I don't know whether you thought about it, but it's been a section that has puzzled theologians for centuries. Uh, and let's look at these verses, and, and then we'll say a few words about them. After Jesus was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit, Peter says, so he, Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those who disobeyed God long ago, when God waited patiently, while Noah was building his boat, the ark. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that picture, that water, it's a picture of baptism which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. And it is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, What's caused puzzlement over the centuries is Peter's assertion that after his res resurrection and in the spirit, Jesus went and preached to spirits in prison, and specifically the spirits of people who were disobedient way back in Noah's day. So I want to take a brief look at that, because, and I don't want it to distract from the main point of his letter about suffering for Christ. That is an important part of our life. But at the same time, I don't want to just skip over these verses because they 
can be difficult and some, have some of you go away wondering what on earth was Peter talking about. Actually, um, we're not alone. There's a quote from Martin Luther, we'll put it up for you. He struggled with this same passage. Look what he said. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant. So if you're a little bit confused and I am, hey, we're in good company. But commentators of all stripes agree that his words were no doubt clear to the first century believers to whom Peter was writing. But they've been difficult to understand for later generations uh, because we weren't around there and we didn't know the history of the time. But there are now a majority of uh, commentators today who have come to an understanding one such as one theologian has put it, that the verses are referring to Christ's victory proclamation following his resurrection as he ascended to heaven to sit on the right hand of God the Father. And that Peter's intention here is to impress his readers that nothing can come against them, you know, that is not under the control of the risen and living Christ. No evil, nothing so bad can take away your relationship with our Lord. But as to what Peter says about Jesus preaching to spirits in Noah's day following his, re his resurrection, where is he getting this? Now, back in the fourth century, Augustine, he had problems with this. He was concerned about what Peter was saying, that in preaching to spirits who were held prisoners centuries before, or maybe those spirits uh, might listen to Jesus preaching and want to get converted. And uh, he was concerned you'd, you'd have the possibility of a post-mortem conversion. Jesus going back in time, saving people after they had died. And scripture simply doesn't allow for that. Now, more modern theologians, uh, late 19th, 20th, and now 21st century, and the majority of them, uh, look to the uh, study of Jewish tradition at the time Peter wrote these letters. A tradition that is found in extra-biblical literature that was very well known at the time. And specifically referring to the book of First Enoch, which was a highly esteemed writing in Jewish culture. Remember, Enoch was the son of Cain and therefore the grandson of Adam and Eve. Uh, he was also the great-grandfather of Noah. Enoch lived 365 years. Imagine if God let us live that long now. I don't know what would happen to the earth and the population. But anyway, Genesis chapter 5, you, you can read that story there. In verse 24, and then it says, Enoch walked with God and God took him. And you might know Enoch was one of two people in the Bible. Elijah was the other one who did not die a physical death. God just took him, took both of them. And so Enoch's story and Noah's story was extremely well known in Jewish culture, and that had spread somewhat through the uh, Middle East. Anyway, in his writings, Enoch states that the spirits in prison, which verse 19 of Peter's chapter 3 seems to refer to, the spirits in prison were in fact souls of children born of fallen angels or sons of God, as they are called in Genesis 6, 
who were mating with human women and creating, Genesis 6, 4, a race of giants. And immediately, verse 5, God is distraught over the human wickedness that is spreading throughout his creation. And he declares in verse 6, it broke his heart. And then God says in verse 7, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. And he did that, except for eight people. And that is when he asked Noah to create the ark, build the ark. And so this seems to be the context of 1 Peter 3.19. Then the spirits to whom Christ preached should be understood as the fallen uh, angels or demonic spir uh, spirits. And that in preaching to them, he was not offering uh, an opportunity to gain salvation, not at all. But that despite his death, Jesus' death, his resurrection was a triumph over everything that was evil, past, present, and future. That's the, the breadth of this salvation that we have in the cross and the resurrection. That ultimately is Peter's point, to encourage his people who were suffering persecution. Uh, just uh, a little aside for a moment, if there are any trivia buffs in the congregation, you may keep this piece of information in the back of your minds. Um, Noah, and, and along with this story, Noah was the most prominently known uh, biblical figure uh, in Asia Minor at the time of Peter's writing, even the Gentile population. In fact, Noah's fame is attested to by a series of Noah coins minted by Rome, you know, under five emperors from 193 AD to 253 AD. And interestingly, the coins depicted Noah and his wife you know, their heads were on one side of the coin and, of course, the Roman emperor's head on the other side. So, again, it simply tells us that it's more than likely that Peter's Gentile readers of his day uh, knew enough about the traditions and what caused the flood to understand what Peter was talking about in verses 19 to 21. Actually, a really good uh, commentary, and there are several out there uh, on this issue, is one by a theologian, Karen Jobes, who's been professor of New Testament exegesis and uh, grammar and so on at Wheaton College in uh, Illinois. It's technical in some parts because she really does an in-depth grammatical study and exegetical study of Peter's uh, letter. But we'll put her comments up here towards the end of this section. And she says, Peter brings Noah into his letter at this point in order to connect Christ's victory to the Noah tradition so prominent in the culture in which his readers lived. Peter further reinforces the connection between Noah and Christianity by drawing the analogy between Noah's deliverance from the floodwaters and Christian baptism. So there is a connection here between what happened centuries ago in Noah's day and what Peter is seeking to do and encouraging the people of his day. So again, uh, he draws that picture of Christian baptism from the flood that Noah experienced in that the very water that threatened to drown Noah 
if he had not obeyed God, actually became the means of his and his family's salvation as the ark floated safely on top of those flood waters. And again, verse 21, we'll pop that up for you. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is now effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's coming back to the main theme of his letter, and of course the dirt here, you know, he's not referring to the dirt on their bodies, which you know, some bath soap will take care of, at least for a while. But he's referring to the dirt of sinful nature. You know, it inhabits all of us, and we can be cleansed, and we can be cleansed once and for all by the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And he reminds us that the baptism we have committed ourselves to involves living a right relationship with our Lord, to seek to consciously and consistently follow his ways, his teachings throughout our lives. And we have the Holy Spirit to guide us in doing that. So therefore, again, encouraging people of his day, encouraging us to remain faithful, even under persecution, even under the pressure to change our values and morality to fit those of our society. And if we remain faithful there, in effect, we are honoring our baptismal vows. That's the point of this verse. And then he concludes by reminding us of why we can survive persecution as Christians. Verse 22, now Christ has gone to heaven he is seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. So he concludes this chapter by affirming that in his resurrection, Jesus has revealed his power, his authority over every force, every power in human life and not only human life, but over angels and demons as well. Anything that could threaten his followers to take them away from the love of Jesus Christ. No, Christ has proclaimed a victory, a worldwide, uh, a lasting for all time victory through the cross, through his resurrection. And in that process, he has subdued even the most evil of beings, yes, even those back in Noah's day, such that they can never take our standing away from our Lord Jesus. One of my uh, most comforting verses in the Bible, and I'll close with this, comes from the Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 10:13. You may well be familiar with it. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And as we remember and think and pray on these things through the power the presence of God's Holy Spirit within us, we need never fear the fury of Satan. We need never give up hope or surrender to social pressures 
or weaken our faith. Christ has indeed opened a door to a far better way of life as we call upon his strength, his spirit, to guide us throughout our lives. And suffering for Christ, even if there are hardships involved, is a far better way of life than what any ungodly society can ever offer us. Amen. I invite the praise team to come forward, and uh, as they are, let's just take a moment to bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again uh, for your word and the reminder of what you have accomplished for us in the Lord Jesus, for the hope, the comfort, the encouragement you give so that we can live our lives that reflect your presence, your love, your cares, your ways in the world in which we live. Lord God, grant us courage when we face those times of persecution for your sake. And may your peace, which passes all understanding, fill our lives when pressures to compromise your word are placed upon us. May we stand with your disciples of old and those throughout the centuries since who have remained faithful to you, that we too might truly hold fast to the faith with which you have given us. And so may we leave here today with an even deeper sense of your presence and your comfort within us. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.